You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. Hello, this is JT English. <laughs> and I'm joined by my co-host, the infinitely smarter Kyle Worley, and the infinitely more beautiful Jen Wilson. How's that? That's pretty good. Yeah? Yeah. Um, on today's episode, we're going to begin to finish out our consideration of the Apostles' Creed by asking the question, what is the forgiveness of sins? Hope you enjoy the discussion. All right. Hey, I want to talk about something that you guys have been building and that's about to launch out uh, because you guys have done a good job of celebrating. How do you know our secret plan to launch I, a well, you new created, government? You created a website. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I want to talk about training the church. Okay. Yeah. And just kind of like what that is because it's really exciting mm-hmm. and it's really fun. And I remember I heard about it. And then I was jealous that mm-hmm. I wasn't there. <laughs> and then you texted me and said, hey, do you want to help? Yeah. And I was like, yes. We need your help. I was Because it looks so cool. Yeah. That's what I was. I was just jealous. So I want to talk. You guys have done a good job celebrating Mosaic and other yeah. stuff here. I'll also so. celebrate my wife. My wife built that website. She did? Mm-hmm. Wow. Macy English yeah, for the incredible. win. Yeah. yeah. I mean, her talent never stops, does it? Right. She just did a it's women at work form for us yeah. and killed it. She loved it. She had a good time doing it. Oh, my gosh. Okay. She, well, she's the... She's incredible. Yeah, I believe uh, that. Yeah, so training the church. Uh, Jen and I have been having conversations over the last few years about how do we how do we help other churches believe in the philosophy of ministry and not just believe in it but implement it, like develop a philosophy of ministry that makes sense for their local context and their church uh, to how to how to develop a philosophy of ministry that lasts for them. Uh, it's easy for churches to develop a new philosophy of ministry every six months because they went to a new conference. Yep. But what if you do, developed a philosophy of ministry that – stayed and mm-hmm. had some staying power and actually help people grow and develop into maturing disciples of Jesus. And so we we were just getting a lot of questions, uh, like whether it be emails or phone calls, like, hey, how do you guys do this? Or visits. Or like visits. We people would have coming. people say, can we come spend half a day with you? And we were saying yes. Yeah, and then we, we were like, man, we're... We would love to... We need a way to do this that makes sense. We also realized that when the half day visits were coming in, there wasn't a whole lot of... Uh, accountability on there and actually go implement it was just them kind of wanting to hear from us and we wanted to create an environment where like let's actually help you implement follow up let's stay in conversation together over over six months or so and so we launched training the church we have our first uh, gathering next week with uh i guess it's about seven churches and kind of their executive teams or leaders or ministry leaders coming in just to spend some time with us to learn how we're doing what we're doing that's awesome yeah i'm glad you're gonna be in it with us well i was glad I was glad. Don't to be, be the weakest link. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> that is no pressure. Uh, so uh, yes, I love it because I just get to say, as somebody who left the like, I was here, helped kind of get to play a role in, in building some of the things here um, with you and, and Jen, and then left to a much smaller environment um, where we didn't have a permanent space. We there was no leadership structure built out and, and planted. You guys were so helpful in helping adapt that and helping me kind of figure mm-hmm. out how do you adapt for an environment that wasn't a mega church? Because I left thinking I want to do this, but I felt like only a mega church could make it yeah. happen. And uh, I got to say, I'm like really encouraged because I am a recipient of the benefit of figuring out how to take this adult education and Bible literacy and theological education and then bring it to a place where it didn't exist and it was very fluid. 
in terms of your resources mm-hmm. and your structure and what exists and, and help build it out. So well, I mean, honestly, I'm pumped. The main reason I'm excited that you're a part of it is because I like you a lot. Oh. We're going to have fun. I but like honestly, what, the main question that we no get – yeah, okay. the main question that we get when we like do, when Jen and I do presentations on this is is this scalable? Yeah, yeah. and you're one of those uh, examples for us. Of course, it is. I've got mm-hmm. another friend down in Brownwood, Texas, who basically took our model or the questions we were asking, and he's doing it at a church, uh, Coggin Church, and he's got Coggin University now, and it's that's awesome. And it's just he's crushing it. It's that's so, cool. so it's. I think that's been the thing that that I I was always answering the question. Yes, of course it's scalable. I hope, and then in the back of your mind, like I really hope this is scalable. And now we're seeing it really is. You could be mm-hmm. at a church plant of seventy people, and some of the principles of what we're doing here is entirely scalable. Absolutely, or at a, or at a mega church, and it's scalable. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So, if somebody wanted to find out more information, trainingthechurch.com. Trainingthechurch.com. Proud of you guys. Thank that's you. That's awesome. That's really exciting. Um, so we're jumping back into Apostles' Creed today. Um, and the Apostles' Creed, if you have forgotten, it was what we were covering over the course of season three. And we didn't finish it because um, we didn't pace it the right way. That's- Some people thought we were just going <laughs> to dump off the end. <laughs> yeah. Just cut off the last few lines of the Apostles' Creed, um, leave them forgotten and unspoken. But we're not. So JT's going to read the Creed, and then we're going to jump into talking today about the forgiveness of sins. What does it mean, the forgiveness of sins? JT. Here's the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. So today, we're looking at the forgiveness of sins. But before we do that, if somebody just jumped in, I want to just kind of rewind a little bit, talk about why are we looking at the creed, what is the creed, when is the creed, why does it matter for us, those kinds of questions. And so, JT, just kick us off. Why are we looking at the creed? Yeah, so the creed is, uh, especially the Apostles' Creed, is really, it's, it's a... It's what the church has believed in all times, at all places, by all Christians. This is the thing that really binds us all together as uh, the, as the creed would say, the holy Catholic or the holy unified, the universal church. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in the creed that, that a denomination doesn't believe. Like we're all agreeing on these things. If there's something in the creed that you're, that you're unwilling to confess or not say, that's not because you're a Baptist or a Presbyterian or an Anglican. It's because you're not a Christian. And so these are the things that make us distinctly Christian. So it's, a, it's, a, it's the doctrinal pattern of what the church has given to all Christians in order to believe and confess. Why? Because this is our hope. Like this isn't just a systematic theology that's giving us ideas. It's helping us to share in the hope of the Christian faith, specifically that what Jesus has done, he actually did, and we're recipients of, and what he's coming to do, he's going to come and do, and we can place a great uh, hope in the resurrection and life everlasting. I think historically it was significant at the time that it is is written or yielded up to the church because not everyone had a copy of the Bible. Right. And so it was a thumbnail sketch. It was, you know, this is these are the things that we all agree on. It was something that was repeatable. Uh, but I think that it matters for the church today because we have such a proliferation of resources mm-hmm. and uh, access to the scriptures that we can feel overwhelmed by the access that we have. Mm-hmm. And this points us back to, no, no, this is what we all agree on. Yeah, absolutely. It, 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 it's our shared base. Mm-hmm. It's our mm-hmm. shared foundation. I think it's meeting a different uh, but an, an analogous need. Absolutely. Um, so let me just play devil's advocate here for a second. But 
if we have scripture, right, is the creed somehow better than scripture or more authoritative than scripture? Like, why wouldn't we just spend these extra episodes just like going through more scripture, right? Yeah, so uh, that's a good question because mm-hmm. there, there is kind of this in evangelicalism a conversation about the relationship between the Bible and history or like a historical document. And uh, what the creed or other confessions help us do isn't uh, change what we believe about the Bible, but it helps us see the Bible better. It, it gives us a lens through which to become better Bible readers. It gives us a – it's kind of the RX prescription glasses that we put on so we can finally see Scripture through the lens that we were intended. It's not more authoritative. It's not It's not, It's not. not uh, inerrant the way the Bible – or inspired the way yeah. the Bible is inspired. Uh, but it does help us know our sacred text better. Yeah. Uh, one of you has said this before. I don't know. Um, sometimes it's hive mind in here. But uh, I don't care that you read scripture. I care how you read scripture. Yeah. That's, that sounds that, like some JT. Yeah, I that think is so. Um, and uh, uh, that part of what the creed does, like you said, give us the right uh, prescription lenses. The church is sometimes called this the rule of faith, mm-hmm. right? That we have a... Uh, the proper kind of paradigm by which to assemble the truths of Christianity, yeah. not because the creed is somehow more clear or better, mm-hmm. but because it works as a distillation yeah. and it takes where there's confusion and helps bring some clarity. Well, that's one of the things that the creed is doing or other creeds like uh, Nicaea or Chalcedon or even confessions is those are things that are happening real time in the life of the church to help guide people back into what the Bible is actually saying. Mm-hmm. Because what's arising, and this is really important, what's arising in those historical moments is heresy from within the church from the Bible. Yeah. That sounds a little crazy, but like Gnosticism, for example, mm-hmm. that's a group of people who believe they're a part of the church. They're actually members of churches and they're reading their Bibles and they're coming to really, really dangerous mm-hmm. conclusions about what the Bible's saying sure. because they're misreading the Bible. And so what the church has done over time is develop these creeds in order to help us show, for example, a Gnostic or somebody who doesn't believe in the deity of Christ like an Arian in, yep. in the third century that, no, 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 it's not what the Bible's saying. The mm-hmm. Bible's actually saying these things. Yep. It's also helping keeping – it's okay, can't talk, helping to prevent us from putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Mm-hmm. Like I love that today we're going to talk about the forgiveness of sins and where it is placed in the creed is significant. Yeah. Like uh, a common confession you might hear on the lips of an evangelist today would begin with, I believe my sins are forgiven. Right. And yet what the creed has done is it has walked us through the doctrine of God before it brings us, and even in the doctrine of the church, like yeah. it has walked us through the most important things so that by the time we get to this thing that is extremely important, it is placed within the setting of those other things. The yeah. forgiveness of sins is only meaningful insofar as the one who has forgiven us is God, the father, almighty maker of heaven and mm, earth. Right. That's good. Yeah. Well, let's talk more about that because that's where we were headed. Yeah. Is, okay, so... You're right. If if like if I was going to show up and I had you know thirty minutes with a crowd mm-hmm. and I was going to talk about the gospel, I probably would begin talking very personally. Right. I would talk about myself, or I would talk about them. I would talk about their sin as a very individual or personal consideration, and I would probably begin to get them to focus on the forgiveness of sins. I don't know that I would spend the time that the creed does, right, or mm-hmm. at least go in the structure of the creed. 
And not saying that you would have to do that, but it's interesting that the creed places forgiveness of sins in the third line, the third to last line, as opposed to the first line. Like we all so often do when we're talking about the message of salvation or the message of the Bible, right? Yeah. It starts with God and then it moves into the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and what all that he did, and that's the bulk of the creed. And then the spirit, then the church, the communion of saints, and the forgiveness of sins. So is it, are they indicating something to us to have forgiveness of sins at this place in the creed? You were, you were saying that you felt like there might be some consideration there. Yeah, absolutely. I just don't think that forgiveness of sins, if you don't understand by whom you've been forgiven, then you will treat forgiveness as optional. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, or what was required in order for you to receive it. Right. Like, like we don't understand. Or, yeah, we yeah. don't understand the depth of, of mm-hmm. what happened in Genesis three, yeah, and the creed the creed begins with Genesis one, right, mm-hmm. and that's a part that I think a lot of times in the modern church we forget. We spend all of our time talking about the problem of Genesis three without setting it up within what it was like and what it will be like again. Yeah. And the creed does that, mm-hmm. yeah. And I, I also was noticing that the creed follows the pattern of the New Testament epistles when they open. You yeah. know, they begin with the the transcendent view of God, and yeah. then they celebrate the finished work of Christ and its implications for us in, yeah. in forgiveness of sins. And I think you're absolutely right. Like even I've always been struck by the story of uh, um, Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter six, where you get the the vision of the holiness of God, which then what unveils to Isaiah his, his own sin, his own right. sin. Um, and uh, that one of the things that often inhibits us from truly understanding the impact of sin is not having a small view of sin. Because I think sometimes, particularly in evangelical circles, we have no problem blowing up the, like a big picture of sin. Mm-hmm. This is how sin has affected you. Let me tell you how terrible and wicked and dirty your heart is. But it's never contrasted with just the goodness and the holiness of God, who he is. And or so, the wrath of God. Right. So they're, all that it is is a very like – uh, it is you're broken and your brokenness should be remedied, as oppo- which is just a different kind of self-help. It just feels a little bit more washed up mm-hmm. as opposed to saying you have rebelled against God. This is who he is. This is what he has done. He's created the whole world, right? His son, Jesus Christ, has lived a perfect life. Um, and so there is, I think, an interesting thing here. So that's its relationship to the doctrine of God. But what about its relationship to the doctrine of the church here? Because it moves in, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. That seems interesting that it moves from a corporate perspective, right, and into the forgiveness of sins. Mm-hmm. I wonder why that is. Yeah, well, I think uh, I think we shared this line when we did the podcast on I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I believe it was Tertullian that said something along the lines of, uh, unless you have the church as your mother, you can't have God as your father. Mm. And so in an individualistic age, we can kind of maybe bristle at that idea of like, well, I no, 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 no. I have my personal relationship with God. And the creed is showing us here, no, 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 this is, a, this, is a, this is something that you're a part of. You don't receive forgiveness of sins because you're a part of the church, mm. but nobody has received forgiveness of sins that is not part of the universal church. Right. And so it's not, a, it's not like a one-to-one correlation once you join the church, you have forgiveness of sins. But it is very clear that unless you are a part of the body of Christ, in which you have been in union with him mm-hmm. by the power of the Holy Spirit, that is the church, and you haven't received forgiveness of sins. Right. So forgiveness of sins is, is, is moving us into this corporate body that's been moving throughout history of the people who can celebrate the good news that we've just been sharing, that God is holy, he's set apart, that he is almighty, mm-hmm. that we have not represented him, but rather rebelled and rivaled him, wanting to become our own gods. But in Christ, we have received forgiveness because he, the true image bearer, 
has borne the wrath, the penalty, and the weight of our sin and beat it. He resurrected from the dead, which is what we've already celebrated in the creed, and he now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, gives us this new everlasting life, which the creed is now turning our attention to. Yeah. I think it's one of the things that's – yes. One of the things that is – uh, that, that is really interesting about this is that it pushes a little bit on um, some of the way that we approach the individual and the community uh, in the Christian life, but particularly in contrast with the story of Scripture. Like, it's really hard to find in the Old Testament uh, uh, individual sin forgiven, mm-hmm. but you have corporate sin forgiven, right? Mm-hmm. Even when you think about the sacrificial system, the great sacrifices were days of atonement for the people. Right. Um, now, there were personal sacrifices per, in, in individual offerings, but there were also corporate sacrifices for sin. Yeah. And the most significant sacrifices among Israel were the corporate sacrifices in Day of Atonement mm-hmm. in Leviticus 16 being the most principal one. In the New Testament, you do start to get more of an attention on the individual. Like right? Jesus saying to specific exactly, people. Exactly. Your sins are forgiven. Yep. Pick up your mat, right? Yep. Or pick up your mat and walk. Your sins are forgiven. What's easier to say that your sins are forgiven? You guys get it. But there is more of a focus on the individual here. Uh, not more of a focus, but that comes more into view mm-hmm. in the New Testament. And then the epistles, though, are trying to bridge that gap. In mm-hmm. some ways, this is what Paul's trying to do in Romans 9 through 11, right? Who is forgiven and how could they be forgiven? Is it Israel? Is it us? Is it right. the Gentiles? Well, it, this is how God has been doing it. And so I do like that the decree – I think that one of the things that we, we should note here is that the forgiveness of sins is placed here because this is a time in which it's probably not as marked by radical individualism as it is today. In history. In, in history. history, yes. That's a good comment. I've not thought of it that way Which before. is that That's there's helpful. a little bit of a push. Uh, to helping us see ourselves in light of this larger forgiven whole. Um, but, okay, so getting out of oh, – go ahead. Well, I also think it's following the pattern of the great command. It's doing the vertical to the horizontal. And so it moves from, you know, relationship with God to relationship with neighbor. And the the lie that we always tell ourselves when we commit a sin is this will only impact me. Mm-hmm. And there's no such thing as a sin that doesn't have collateral damage. Yeah. And there's no such thing as a forgiven sin that doesn't have collateral benefit to the mm. community. Yeah. And the reason that we don't ask for forgiveness of God is because we are disinterested in God. Yeah. Like that's why the creed is is trying to um, raise your interest. You know, like uh, uh, an unbeliever does not care that he has offended God. He hasn't given God one single thought. Yeah. Uh, and then similarly, an unbeliever doesn't care that he sinned against his neighbor because he sees himself as the most important human. Yeah. And so the creed is is establishing that if you are disinterested in God, you will sin against God. If you're disinterested in your neighbor, you will sin against your neighbor. There's no such thing as a sin committed against self alone. Mm. And then it places forgiveness of sins in a place where we have to see it in reference to community yeah. and relationship with God. Yeah, I think that's absolutely vital. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. 
As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. So we're talking about the placement of this line in the creed. But what is sin? Like when uh, it talks about forgiveness of sins, yeah. what is sin? Is there a difference between sin and sins or Big S, a capital letter S sin, and little little S sin. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we're talking about sin in the Bible, what are we talking about? This is a really important point, I think, for evangelicals to spend some time thinking about and retrieving. Because often when we preach about sin, we're talking about somebody's actions. Like, mm-hmm. you sinned this week, but God has forgiven you. And that's entirely true. But before we get to talking about sin as action, we need to talk about sin as being or sin as nature. And that's really, I think, what what the creed is emphasizing here, and that's what theology has tried to emphasize. This is the debate in the 4th century between Augustine and Pelagius, where they're talking about the nature of sin, and Augustine highlights and emphasizes, before you can view yourself as a sinner because of action, you have to view yourself as a sinner because of being, like who you you are, yeah, your nature. Uh, So humanity sins because we are sinners, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like we have uh, misshapen desires, misshapen affections, and we want to rebel because at the core of our being, we are rebels, is what Augustine is trying to say. As I was preparing yesterday, just looking at over the notes, I found this quote uh, from J.I. Packer defining sin that I thought was really helpful. That, that captures the, the both and of being and action. He says, sin is lawlessness in relation to God as lawgiver, rebellion in relation to God as rightful ruler, missing the mark in relation to God as our designer, guilt in relation to God as judge, and unclean in relation to God as the Holy One. Sin is perversity touching each one of us everywhere and at every point of our lives. Hmm. That's really good. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I'm glad that you told us that you had looked it up yesterday so that our listeners wouldn't think you had it like tattooed on your forearm <laughs> or something. It's on my palm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're right. That, that does... It's important to capture that, okay, so there's this, so sin is this nature and action mm-hmm. that, that, that flows into actions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it is multifaceted. It, it feels different. Even the way the Bible talks about sin, whether it's through exile language or mm-hmm. uncleanliness or um, uh, rebellion, rebellion lawlessness. guilt, lawlessness. Unclean. Yeah, unclean. Yeah. Um, defilement, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, all of these things that capture just the the harshness, the brokenness, the darkness, the tragedy of sin. Yeah, man, that's good. 
I mean, leave it to J.I. Packer to be eminently quoted. Right. right? I mean, Let's just read him on the program. Yeah, from now on this is not, now a J.I. Packer audio, audio book, essentially. Um, but this is a difficult teaching for people. It is. Uh, in fact, I think it's a big obstacle to those who are hearing the gospel is to hear that you were born, you were born broken. Yeah. We can often think about, uh, I think one of our modern tendencies is to think of our greatest problem being outside of us or yeah. something done to us. Now, yeah. I don't want to minimize those things. There are massive problems outside of us, and there have been Terrible horrible things. things done to us. But the worst thing that's ever happened is in us. Our greatest problem is internal, not external, and our greatest hope is external, not internal. Mm-hmm. So the gospel is giving us really clear directions saying you have a problem because of who you are and you have a great hope because of who Christ is. So yeah. your hope is external, problem internal, not the opposite. Yeah. Well, and you're touching on an interesting point because what I hear taught so often or preached so often is that God wants to take away your fears and anxieties instead of your guilt. Right. And it's not that, I mean, I think it's like, well, I mean, they, they know that part, right? And it's mm. like, no, no, no. God is not just here to give you emotional or um, uh, psychological peace. Yeah. Uh, he's here to remove the guilt that mm-hmm. is inside of you. Yeah. 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 And that that guilt is not just a, I, I don't want to uh, psychological or existential Fear. It's not just like a. It's, there's not just this foreboding sense of guilt that is leading to this threshold of death or exile or whatever it is, but that it it, it is a. It is the measure of separation between you and God. Mm-hmm. We are actually guilty. Yes, we, are we don't just feel guilty. guilty. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, you know um, that's an important part of thinking through the doctrine of sin is uh, that as we've thought about sin or as the church has thought about sin. Um, going as far back as this creed and beyond to the story of scripture, we've had this idea of the doctrine of original sin. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that I'll often talk to people about, I'm meeting with a guy right now. We have coffee pretty regularly. Not a believer. And his whole thing is, well, why? what makes me sinful or broken? Because I feel like... I've not done, so bad. Not so bad. Um, and, I, and I'll often say, well, you know, according to the Bible, according to the story of scripture, you were in Adam when Adam sinned. Mm-hmm. Um, That's so not fair, though. When Adam sinned, he sinned on your behalf, and you sinned with him. Right. Uh, I would and, have done better than Adam. Right. Well, I would have chosen differently. No, that's really people yeah. don't say that. You know, they don't articulate but that. That's what they feel. But we really feel like, well, well, why is he my representative? Exactly. Like I would have chosen the right thing. Right. No. And the doctrine of original sin is 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 emphasizing this, right? That's, yeah. that's the almost the entire. Adam of did the what we would all do. That's yes, right. and that and that because, and we did it with him. And yeah, we, we did, did it with him. him. That we were complicit, even though we did not physically, materially exist yet. We were complicit in that action. That's right. Um, given that what we call Adam is our federal head mm-hmm. or our representative. He was essentially our, our, our ambassador before God in the garden with Eve. And so from the doctrine of original sin, you'll sometimes hear when you're thinking through the doctrine of sin, also something about total depravity. Mm-hmm. Total depravity. Now, what is the distinction between original sin and total depravity? If somebody was saying, yeah, okay, original sin, and then they move to talking about total depravity, what are the unique kind of contexts? Because this is one of those doctrines where all of a sudden these phrases and words start getting used interchangeably, and often they mean different things. Mm-hmm. So people will, be, will say something like, well, you know, uh, because of what Adam did, we're all totally depraved. You know, okay, you're like, well, okay, that's partly true, but that's not what that event was. Mm-hmm. That was original sin 
were marked by it. What is total depravity? Yeah, there's obviously overlap between yeah. these two, but this one is emphasizing the perversity and just how perverse our nature actually is. Yeah. That the sinfulness uh, which pervades all of our being uh, extends totally mm-hmm. and, and is talking about the nature that we have. It does not mean that anytime we have a moral decision, we act as wickedly as we possibly can right. and always make the same bad decision. It just means that we could. and It we touches have the na- every part of us. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah, and that uh, I've heard, I think it was Sproul, um, who talked about the doctor of total depravity being meaning that we are both unable and unwilling by our own nature without the intervening grace of God to choose, choose righteousness, righteousness. Right. unable and unwilling. So when you think about original sin, you're talking about the event of the fall with everything that comes with that and total depravity being the inability and unwillingness as a result of our sinful nature, as a result of original sin, uh, for us being able to choose God or not choose God. Um, when we think about the account in the garden, I'm often, uh, I often remember the song that we use in mm-hmm. the training program a lot. Oh, man. Uh, this it's is, a haunting song. Well, are you thinking about the Sufjan song? Yes. I'm no, thinking no, no, about no, no, David no. Bazaar. Are you guys about to sing? No. No, but you would love that, wouldn't you? Well, both <laughs> of them are haunting. They are both haunting. But I'm thinking about the Bazan song in particular. Yep. So th- there's this guy named David Bazan. He was the lead singer for a guy named Pedro the Lion. Are you familiar with this band, Chen? No. Of course not. <laughs> um, and he has this song where he, it's called Hard to Be. Um, and he talks about it's, it's hard to be a decent human being. And then at one point he kind of pauses the song. He's like, wait just a minute. You expect me to believe that all this misbehaving grew from one enchanted tree and helpless to fight it. We should all be satisfied with the magical explanation for why the living die and why it's hard to be hard to be a decent human being. And he this is a guy who's writing from the perspective of somebody who was a Christian, who is no longer identifying as a Christian. He's kind of stepped away from the faith, and he is saying, and it's incredibly difficult for me to believe that this happened in some garden around a tree. So I often find that maybe the biggest stumbling block, and I think this song actually falls into it, is that the idea that the original sin was just eating fruit from this tree. Yeah. I, 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 I know that it seems silly to us, but when I'm talking to people about sin, probably the number one objection I get about the account of original sin is really God cared about this tree. So could we just spend a moment talking about, is that really what's happening in Genesis three? I know that that's the act itself, but is that really what it's about is that they ate from this tree or is that actually just the action that signifies what's the substance of the sin? Well, if you read what Satan says to Eve, he says, God knows that in the day that you eat of it, you will become like, like him. Yeah. And that's a significant statement because they are already like him. Yeah. So what the serpent is offering must be a twisted version of being like God that is not permitted. Mm. Uh, and that's the rivalry. You heard JT use the language of rivalry. Um, we were created to reflect God. And sin is choosing to rival him instead of reflect him. And so it means that we begin to reach for those things that are only true about God and want them to be true about us. So things like, I want to be the sovereign ruler of my own universe. I want to be self-sufficient. I want to be... eternal. Uh, and we start to, and, and you would think, oh, I, I don't do those kinds of things, but we actually do those kinds of things all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, we, the, the cult of youth that you see um, in our, our current culture is saying, I'm, I, I don't ever want to die. You know, mm-hmm. all the, all the, all the medications and the health programs, yeah. in it, which is not to say obviously that you wouldn't seek 
bodily health, but you can tell that it goes somewhere else pretty quickly. Any time that we set ourselves up in opposition to God by choosing our will over his will, that's what is playing out in the garden. So, um, so, and it's always surprising to me that people who would also like say, why do you read the Bible so literally? I'm like, well, why don't you just treat yourself to a little figurative reading on top of the literal reading for 10 seconds and, right. and, and go ahead and just look at the arch, archetype because it's there. Right. You know, this is the, this is what all sin is. All sin is usurpation of the authority and image of God. Yep. Yeah. And I think that, that you've absolutely nailed it that, and this is not us dismissing whether or not the tree happened or not. Right. That's not what we're discussing at all. We're, we're simply saying that if you have ever found that as being like, well, that's a really petty rule that God made up. And that's a really petty reason for sin to enter the world is the wrong piece of fruit from the wrong tree. Mm-hmm. Then you're missing what's happening there, which right. is that the opportunity or the invitation that Adam and Eve step into sinfully is to rebel against God by trying to become God mm-hmm. as God is not in his image, but to being the substance of God, to being ruler They're like, like God has said, I'm, this is my world. I give it it's to you for self-determination. Delight. Exactly. Yeah. That they want to exchange the rule of God for their own rule and reign. Yep. And so I think that's an important point um, for us to clarify, because when we're talking about the forgiveness of sins and we're talking about original sin and we're talking about our brokenness, it's hard enough for us to really begin to, to believe and understand that our brokenness is a result of this act in the garden. It's particularly complicated if we think that act in the garden was just like petty hall monitor kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not what it is, right? It's the overthrowing or the attempted overthrow of the rule and reign of the true king and his kingdom. So that's kind of some big picture perspective on sin and sins. But how has sin impacted me, right? So we've talked about, listen, that there's maybe a push in the creed toward more of a corporate understanding of this, and that's good. But when we think about the impact of sin, how has sin impacted the three of us? How has sin impacted the world, right? I mean, what are the impacts or effects of sin? I mean, that's that's getting back to the total depravity. I mean, we are depraved. Uh, our desires aren't what they should be. Our actions aren't what am they should be. Am I depraved right now? Yes. I am. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't. I wouldn't say that I am. Tell me why. Well, because I have a new nature in Christ Jesus. Yes, that's true. But you still act in a de- from a depraved nature. It, it is not that you're not being sanctified, but your desires have not completely been sanctified. No, but I do have a new heart. And I have a do I do have a yeah. new set of desires yeah. that I wouldn't have had prior. Yeah, I'm fine saying that. Okay, I guess it depends what we mean. Yes, by, but but what you wouldn't want to do is take that too far and be expecting some kind of a, perfectionism. Yes, yeah, which That's, a lot of which is really dangerous. Yeah, but but I now have the possibility to not sin. Yes, for sure. So like if if today I faced 15 moral choices mm-hmm. and one of which was righteous uh, on each choice, A side was righteous and B side was unrighteousness. I have the ability to make righteous decisions. Today. You have been transferred to the kingdom of God's son. Mm-hmm. You're in union with him and empowered by the Holy Spirit that it is entirely possible that you will never sin again. Yeah. But, but it is also entirely unlikely because there's never <laughs> been a human who's done that. And this is really the debate between Augustine and Pelagius yep. is Augustine is trying to emphasize our ongoing challenge mm-hmm. and, uh, and Pelagius is trying to is trying to say, no, 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 yeah. brother, you can be free from sin completely. And, and I don't want to misrepresent you, but you, you do identify as a Pelagian. Right? I love that. Okay, great. <laughs> Perfect. But also, it's not just about making right choices. It's about doing the right thing for the right reason. And right. that's what you were incapable of yeah. before you became a believer. It, you might have made the, from a moral standpoint, you might have uh, 
you might have abided by the letter of the law and it might have been for the benefit of the community. Mm -hmm. But what it didn't do is bring glory to God. It terminated on you because you didn't acknowledge anything higher than yourself. And so when we... This is what Isaiah means when he says all of our righteous deeds are filthy rags. Yes. Um, Yeah, it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter whether you perform righteous deeds or not. It means that when you're you're dead in sin, you only perform righteous deeds for the sake of self-glorification. You're committing the same sin that Adam and Eve did. You're saying, I am my own highest authority. And what the transformation heart does is it reorients you to say, I am not the, the, the highest authority. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker yeah. of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ's only son. And once we receive that new nature, sin actually becomes more bitter. Yeah. Like you understand what it is you're doing. This is Paul uh, lamenting, like, I don't do the things yeah. that I'm supposed to do. I do the things I don't want to do. Like yeah. you, begin, yeah, you begin to wrestle through <laughs> this idea of like, I, I'm st- there's still this sin in me, this ongoing uh misshapen desires, but I don't like it. Like I, I want the Holy Spirit to sanctify. You're the learning change. to yeah. hate it. Exactly. Yeah, you're learning yeah. to hate it. Yeah. I, I've always loved how um, the apostle John in first John captures this. I've read this on here before, but he says in first John two, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Mm-hmm. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. the righteous. Like, I love that. Like John is holding out hope. He's saying, listen, you can, Walk in righteousness. Mm-hmm. I am writing the. I'm, I'm instructing you so that you will not sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, and that's really, in my mind, that's kind of the banner over Christian obedience. Like, listen, I'm encouraging you, advocating for you, exhorting you to not sin. Mm-hmm. But if you do sin, because you are in Christ Jesus, you have an advocate with the Father. Right. So let's talk about the practicality of living in the statement, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, because at the point that we are justified, we receive forgiveness for every sin we have committed, will commit, like it's all covered. Mm -hmm. So then why would we have an ongoing confession before the Lord? If, If it's all forgiven, then what's the point in saying, no, I believe in the forgiveness of sins in a very practical sense by confessing sin? And, and don't answer me with, well, the Bible tells us to. Yeah, I, I often, I think this is an incredibly important question for the Christian life. And, and the way that I'll talk about this is I often distinguish between union and communion, that we receive forgiveness of sins. Can in, I just pause you real quick? Yeah. You're really, if you're like driving along right now and kind of, kind of paying attention, clue in, because this is a really, like you teach this in the training program and over and over and over again, people say, this helps me immensely. It was, well, it was a great bomb to me. Um, when we think about the declaration of righteousness. What does it mean to be forgiven of sins or to receive the forgiveness of sins? We begin by talking about the doctrine of union with Christ, that we are declared righteous in Jesus Christ, that that is what justification is, is that Jesus Christ has been declared righteous and that by grace, God's unconditional favor and merit through faith, which is the instrument of our salvation, which as the theologians have said, draws everything from the work of Christ and contributes nothing to it, we enter into Jesus Christ. So now we are in him. By virtue of being in him, this is union with Christ, we are declared righteous because he has lived a perfect life, died a sinless death, and secured that righteous standing on our behalf. But we are now entering into communion with God, which was one of the great hopes of our union with Christ, right? Mm -hmm. That we would enter into fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so the reason why we would continue to cultivate an ongoing life of confession of sin, repentance, and obedience is not to firm up our union with Christ, which is forever secure, unshakable. It cannot be disrupted in the least because it's secured in Christ and his perfect obedience. 
but our communion with God can be disrupted. It will be disrupted by sin, by unrighteousness, by disobedience, by not pursuing holiness. And so this is the difference between union and communion. Union is secured by God in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And for those who enter in by grace through faith, it can never be broken or disrupted. Our communion with God is where we enjoy the depths of the riches of being in Christ Jesus. That's where... uh, that God has sealed every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our full enjoyment of those things will be conditional on our obedience, and there are eternal rewards that are conditional on our obedience. Yes. Kyle. Well, the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, yeah. I love this so much. No one ever talks about this. (laughs) No, and one of the great motivations of the Christian life is the present security and comfort of being in Christ Jesus, which we will have in a way that corresponds with our obedience. Makes us want to please him because yes. we're so grateful. And to enjoy the present riches that have been secured in Jesus uh, is contingent on our communion with God in Christ, which is the cultivation of holiness and the putting to death of sinfulness, and the future enjoyment of eternal rewards. And uh, the future... Think about it like this. It is our Christian obedience now is a kind of spiritual cultivation of forever communion with God in heaven. The riches that we enjoy now as a taste, we will enjoy more fully in the new heavens and the new earth. And our obedience of them now is a kind of spiritual exercise and preparation. In some ways, it is limbering us up, making us more flexible making us more prepared, making us more suited for the full enjoyment of those blessings in the heavenly places. Union and communion. It's an important thing to understand. So obedience matters. Obedience matters significantly. <coughs> significantly. I mean, we can. And you can. And, and, if can. You, and if you do, there will be more assurance of salvation in Christ. There will be more enjoyment of uh, felt assurance, not real assurance. Real assurance right. is Jesus is the Perceived, gift. Right. Perceived assurance. There will be more present enjoyment of the blessings of God in Jesus now, and there will be more, more readily available enjoyment of those blessings in the new heavens. And it's motivated by the fact that we have been forgiven. We have been forgiven. So you will enjoy vertical benefits, and I would argue you would also enjoy horizontal benefits. Mm-hmm, yeah. That love of neighbor then flows out of that. So. Tied into this, when you talk about this, and you talk about it better than anybody I've ever heard talk about it, uh, the idea that our communion is impacted by sin makes me think about Jesus. And we're always, you know, I need to do what Jesus did or say what Jesus said. Uh, But what Jesus enjoyed with with God in his, I'm going to say it wrong, JT is looking at me. (laughs) What Jesus enjoyed was perfect communion during the incarnation. Absolutely. Untarnished, undiminished, unadulterated by sin of any kind. Absolutely. So when we look at at, at the human Jesus and say, I should be like that, we need to understand that it's less about mimicking his hands or his speech and more about asking how can that communion be as Mm. pure as possible between me and God by the ruthless elimination of sin. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. And we should, and the union communion language also helps us have a better understanding of the forsakenness of Christ on the cross. When Jesus is, the Son of God is experiencing forsakenness on the cross, what is he experiencing? Well, we know that, that we're getting off track here, but we know as he bears our sins, he's not experiencing ontological or substantive uh, forsakenness from the Father, right? The Father and the Son remain one. 
even on the cross. Yes? Yes, but there's a sense in which he is absorbing that in his human nature. He is absorbing that in his human nature, and he's experiencing the absolute forsakenness of communion with God on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Yes. Yeah. Did I say my part wrong? No, No. you're right. You nailed it. You crushed it. I'm telling you guys the pressure. No. The pressure working with Jim. We had we had no insecurity oh, on yeah. this set. There's no there's no pressure getting the Bible right around Jen Wilkin. Yeah. I've never felt this sense of like, please, Jen, Anytime don't be listening I've ever too said closely something right about, now. Especially the historical like Abner, you know, Abner and Joe Abner friends, I think. It's just I'm pretty sure David like the time that I figured David had figured out David had been anointed three times real time on this on po- the podcast. On the podcast. It was like, yeah, you know, this was the second anointing and Jen's like it's the third. Um so um, well, listen, we're going to keep going through um, the last two lines of the Apostles' Creed this season and talking about um, just why this matters. And so the next time that we're talking through the Creed, we will be looking at uh, the resurrection of the body, which is a big deal, right? Yeah. And a lot of people can only think about resurrection in terms of Jesus, but there is a future resurrection for us as well. We'll be talking about that. So for more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. On our next episode, we're going to be diving back into the book of Acts just in time to find PBNJ. What do you think about that, huh? (laughs) Come on. (laughs) See you next time. Grace and peace.